0: The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger. Let.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is the post-election uh, episode of Negan and the Lone Ranger. We're very happy today to have as our our featured guest, uh, Eric Grenier from The RIT. Uh, You may know Eric Grenier from The Globe and Mail, from CBC. I mean, basically, uh, in this country, if you want to talk about the intersection of politics and polling and seat projections and things like that, Eric is your one-stop shop. And uh, we have actually been on his highly regarded podcast, The RIT, He's good enough to uh, uh, to come on today to our podcast, and we're going to try to make sense of the numbers in the Manitoba election. Eric, thank you very much for being here.
0: Thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: So right off the top, like, just give me your general impressions of the election. And I know that you followed the pre-writ and uh, 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 inter-campaign poll results. Did, the, did this end up pretty much where you thought it was going to end.
0: I think it did in terms of the final results. Uh when we got to the last days of the campaign, there were a couple polls that came out the day before the election and they were suggesting that the NDP was in a position to win a majority government. It was a question of whether they could get, you know, 30 seats or up to 35. There was always the little worry that anybody has when you're looking at poll numbers that the results are going to just be very different from what the poll suggested and everything that you've written or said over the last few weeks is going to make you look really stupid but that (laughs) didn't happen um but also you know going into the campaign there was a few polls that were done in the early summer that suggested it was going to be quite close and uh, i remember the podcast that you did uh, early on in the spring i think it was everybody's projection was that this would largely be a one or two seat majority if that Uh, So, the fact that it didn't end up there, I think might have been due to the campaign. Uh, It could have also been due to the fact that there wasn't a lot of polling done in the early summer, so who knows if that's really where things stood. But I think generally things shook out as was expected by the end of the campaign. There weren't too many surprises, some surprises at the riding level, but the overall result I don't think was much of a surprise.
1: So, what in particular at the riding level did you, like, are you talking about the uh the difficulty that the NDP eventually had in winning seats outside of Winnipeg and nearly running the table inside Winnipeg does that qualify or is there like what what was most surprising to you
0: well some of the polls that we saw during the campaign suggested the NDP was doing quite well in the rural areas of Manitoba and in the end their their results were pretty respectable but they didn't end up doing well enough to win more than uh, one new fully rural seat Uh, So that was a little bit of a surprise, but within Winnipeg itself, you know, you look at a riding like McPhillips, which had been really close in 2019. And when you see that there's been a swing in the polls in Winnipeg of 15 to 20, 25 points, you expect that that's going to be the first one to fall. Uh, But it was actually, again, one of the closest ridings there. So you saw that in the Northeast, for example, some of those seats didn't end up swinging as hard to the NDP as you might have thought. And they did a bit better in the in the west and, and in the south. So there there were some surprises in that sense. Uh, but overall, most of the ridings that we thought probably were going to go NDP did go NDP, and the ones that we thought were going to stick with the PCs stuck with the PCs. Right. Uh, and and for the Liberals, you know, there was that possibility that their vote was just not going to come out where it needed to, and that's what happened. It was a bit of a surprise, though, that in uh, Tyndall Park they were actually able to do so well compared well, to yeah. how badly they did in the other two ridings that they held.
1: Well, we, we refer to that area of the city federally and provincially as, uh, Fortress Lamaru. Uh, so, uh, Cindy lamaru's uh, dad, uh, Kevin Lamaru, they are the, um, they're really the new
2: Ashton's. of Minnesota. Yeah, they,
1: that's right. The candidates who cannot be killed by conventional means is, is, uh, but anyways,
2: um, you know, Eric, uh, Everybody was predicting this to be sort of a groundbreaking election, and it was in lots of different ways. I mean, we haven't really touched upon the WAB as the first First Nations premier. That's historic unto itself. But if, what people were really talking about going into the election was the fact that advanced voting was up extremely. You know, in the 2019 election, we were looking at about 120,000 advanced ballots that were uh, before Election Day. And then this time around over 200,000. So everybody thought, okay, that we're looking at a voter turnout here of, you know, maybe as high as 70%. And then the numbers came in and it's almost the exact same as the 2019 result, which means that people were fine with advanced voting. Um, but basically the same amount of people came out, whether they voted the same or whether it was different people. I mean, that's the real question, but uh, what, what do you read on that? Is Are people advanced voting more? Are people uh, maybe a certain brand of person that came out more? What do you think about that?
0: I do think this is something I've seen in, in more elections. Uh, in recent elections, a lot of the time, the advance poll is is a big number. And a lot of people then say, well, then turnout's going to be really high. And then on election day, it ends up being about the same as before, or sometimes even lower. So I think this is more of a, a broader trend that we've seen outside of manitoba we've seen it in other provincial elections that people just increasingly like to vote in the advanced polls and we're starting to see that elections authorities across the country are making it easier to do that in uh, just in saskatchewan they're starting to change the the language around it to talk about it as uh, as an election period or, or an election week rather than an election day so i think it is more that people are just happier to take advantage of an advanced poll they were going to vote anyway, and they just prefer to get it out of the way. I don't know if it says anything about people deciding earlier or anything like that, or if it's just the kind of people that were always going to be decided and it wasn't going to change whether the last week or the campaign changed anything or not. But yeah, it it does just seem that more people are taking advantage of it. And there's usually now more options. Uh, In Ontario now, if if I'm not mistaken, I think you can vote pretty much every day of the election campaign. So there's just there's a movement just to try to make it as easy as possible. It doesn't seem to be getting more people out to vote, uh, which you know, goes against the entire purpose of it, perhaps. But who knows? Maybe the people that voted in the advance poll did so because they weren't going to be able to vote on election day. So turnout would have been even lower had they not had that opportunity.
1: And it, it is uh, worth mentioning that we had a Uh, an enormous, a gargantuan uh, thunderstorm that rolled through right when, in Winnipeg, right when the polls opened. So uh, honestly, like, I think it probably took an entire swath of people, voters who wanted to stop on their way into work and uh, weren't going to try and uh, dash out of the car uh, in the pouring, like it really came down. So, and that, that thunderstorm as well played out in other ways in the election with power outages and things like that. Um, you, you may have, or you may not have uh, read an interview I did with the PC uh, campaign manager, Marnie Larkin, where she kind of would no, she did admit that um, their strategy in going hard right on a couple of issues in this campaign. One of them was the parental rights uh, uh, issue issue, which uh certainly uh you know activates a, a far right anti-trans uh, anti-lgbtq uh constituency the other one was the the continued celebration of the fact that they would not uh the tory government would not search the landfill for the remains of uh, murdered indigenous women um you know i, I guess the 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 commentary that, that uh, Marnie had was that she felt that they could either compete head to head with the NDP in Winnipeg and likely still lose those seats, all those seats, or they could shore up their support in uh, the rural ridings and, uh, and maintain an overall respectable seat count. And they did win 22 seats. Like, so how does that as a strategy track for you, uh, I think we're we're even a little surprised that they admitted that this is what they were doing, but it also seems to be pretty, pretty darn risky electoral strategy.
0: Well, if that was the strategy, then it was the strategy of not winning the election. It was about retaining seats because there was no chance that the PCs were going to be able to form a government if they didn't do better in Winnipeg. It might've worked because when you look at how the vote shifted, um, you know, the PCs, lost about as much support as they did in the rural areas as they did in Winnipeg Uh, and the NDP was able to make more gains in Winnipeg than outside. So they might have been able to retain more of their seats in the rural areas. And if you look at the next kind of seats that would have fallen had the vote continued to get better for the New Democrats, you know, it'd be uh, Brandon West, uh, Selkirk, Interlake Gimli and, and Dawson Trail. These were among some of those that were next on the list for the NDP. That's more of a reflection of the fact that the NDP more or less did a f- filled up as much as they could in Winnipeg. They weren't going to s- probably sweep the whole city. Uh, so it doesn't seem like a, like a winning strategy to me, obviously because you need to win seats in Winnipeg. Um, one thing that I, I was looking at just before we got on here is there's a thing that we call like the tipping point seat. Uh, it's usually uh, a term that's used in American elections to talk about the state that makes a difference between a president winning the electoral college or not. But a tipping point seat is the one that if you lined up all the seats by the margin of victory, it's the one that decides whether a party wins a majority government or not. And in this election, that seat was Kirkfield Park, Mm -hmm. which is in Winnipeg. But it was won by the NDP by about six points. But when you look at the overall margin of victory for the NDP across the province, they only won by about three and a half points. So that suggests that even if the NDP had lost the popular vote by about two points province-wide, you know, for extrapolating a little bit, they still could have formed a majority government. So it it shows how the PC vote is really not very efficient. So to give up that much of the ground in Winnipeg was obviously a strategy that was, maybe it was gonna shore up in opposition. That's really an important thing to do, to go to win 22 seats instead of 19, Uh, but it was clearly not gonna get them anywhere close to 29 or 30.
1: No. Um, I mean, 22 seats is an accomplishment, uh, you know, based on the the pre-writ polls. Um, and, you know, Marnie Larkin's theory was if we had gone down to 14 seats, we would have been in opposition for like 16 years afterwards, um, which is certainly what happened when Gary Philman lost the 99 election. Then you had 17 years of of NDP government. But, you know, you mentioned like the tipping point seats and the difference between the pluralities or the winning margins in Kirkfield Park. One of the interesting things I noticed was that uh, the largest pluralities in this election were not in seats that normally produce the largest pluralities. So normally it's rural seats held by the progressive conservatives and you get three, four, 5,000 vote pluralities. This time along around, the biggest pro- plurality uh, was in Wolseley, uh, a bedrock NDP seat, and then in Fort Rouge, where leader and uh, premier designate uh, Wab Canu was a candidate, had also a plur- both of them had a plurality of over five thousand seats, and <clears throat> that to me, like rather than looking at the seats where the NDP squeaked by, those two seats, pretty solid NDP but man oh man like the vote turnout was 10 points higher than the provincial average largest pluralities in the province um are, is that can we look at those uh which you know and it's a unique accomplishment and sort of gauge the impact that the Tory campaign had on voters in Winnipeg
0: it definitely looks like in the downtown core in those ridings that were uh that were won by such huge margins by the NDP that the PCs were just not even close to being an option, right? And and the the extent to which things swung towards the NDP does suggest that the campaign that the PCs were running was really not one that was designed in any way to appeal to more of an urban voter, suburban voter maybe, but a lot of those suburban seats ended up not going to the PCs anyway. Uh, another thing, though, with with the kind of margins that we saw in some of those ridings, the lack of I think the Green Party in mm-hmm. Winnipeg did make a difference, right? Because in Wolseley, a lot of the vote that Became available, I guess, to the NDP was the fact that the Greens really weren't competitive there, right? So if you look across Winnipeg as a whole, uh, you know the NDP went up about 16 points or so since uh, the last election. Half of that came from the Liberals and the and the PCs, but the other half probably came from the Greens, just Mm. because they were not there. Uh, So for a lot of voters, I think that the race polarized in such a way between the PCs and the NDP that. If you're a green voter you probably went to the new democrats if you were a liberal a lot of them went to the new democrats and the pcs were able to get their base out so the strategy that they had which seemed to be very structured around getting that base out did seem to work because they got 42 percent of the vote or so um but you know it, it is kind of the thing that that conservative parties in uh, more moderate provinces and across the country always have to deal with is getting That swing voter out rather than just the base out. And in Manitoba, if I'm not mistaken, since I think the 50s, PCs have always been able to win at least 19 seats. Right. So if they would have dropped down to 14, this would have been a catastrophic, disastrous campaign for the party. So the floor might have been a little bit higher than, than maybe the PCs thought it was going to be. But uh, it, it it does just suggest a campaign that either it was a demographic thing that was already happening or it was ex- it was exaggerated by the campaign, that Winnipeg seems to have become more NDP because they won it by a bigger margin than they did in 2011, or, while the PCs uh, are doing better in the rural areas because, again, in 2011, the PCs won it by a smaller margin than they did in in this election. So it yeah. kind of shows, if you look at the last time the NDP won an election, Winnipeg was less NDP and and the rural areas was less PC than it is right now. What,
2: I, I guess we, we're on the pod here, we often are uh, a little bit at times, maybe Manitoba, maybe Prairie centric uh, in that we're often talking about our, our place here and the different thing ways that we sort of obsessed about the election. Um, two questions. One is, uh, how do you think this Manitoba election looked federally? Um, And I think the dominating story there is, of course, the first First Nations Premier. Uh, But secondly, what does this election signal to uh, other conservative movements in the country, particularly maybe the federal conservatives? The fact that 42% of the province voted for uh, what was arguably one of the most racially tinged campaigns, very divisive, hard right elements, particularly with parental rights. Uh, so what are those two questions? One is how what did the election look like federally, and second is what do you think it signals to other conservative movements in the country?
0: Yeah, I think that Manitoba uh, elected a First Nations Premier is something that is going to mark uh, Canadian politics for a very long time and certainly for the next few years as well. So I think that was a really important moment that uh, does have an impact in the rest of the country for Indigenous voters and just for Canadians to get a, a different perspective. Uh, different perspective on on the role of Indigenous Canadians in in sort of our politics, because they've often been pushed to the side. Uh, in terms of like how the election looked from the outside, I think there was always an expe- expectation that the PCs were in trouble, because they've been behind in the polls for about two years. Brian Pallister, when he resigned, it was, the polls were tanking for the PCs. Things never really got much better for Heather Stevenson. So I think there is, an, there is a little bit of a, a, of a, a view of this as almost an inevitable win for the NDP or an inevitable defeat for the PCs, we could put it that way, rather than sort of the surprise upset that the uh, NDP had in Alberta in 2015. No one, I don't think, was really all that surprised that the NDP was able to win it. Um, but, you know, from Justin Trudeau's perspective, he'll prefer to have Wab Canoe around the Premier's table than Heather Stephenson for another four years. He has had a rough time when it comes to that Premier's table over the last little while with, uh, you know, Liberals getting defeated in, In Nova Scotia, in Pi, uh, the NDP not getting elected in in Alberta. So to have finally another progressive voice around the table after so long, I think is something that uh, helps the federal Liberals. For the Conservatives, you know, you you would look at these results and maybe you would say that well, forty two percent is still forty two percent, but. For Pierre Poilievre and the Conservatives, they, they they don't need the kind of vote that the PCs were able to get in this campaign. They need that vote in suburban Winnipeg that the PCs didn't get. Uh, you know, the kind of seats that they would be looking to win would be a seat like Winnipeg South, or you know, uh, that's a kind of seat that did not vote for the PCs in this election, right? If you're looking at just uh, if you're making the NDP vote the uh, the non-conservative vote. So I think that the lesson from this for the federal Conservatives is that. These issues are not necessarily going to resonate with uh, suburban voters. You know, the parental rights issues, there was discussion that perhaps this was designed to get new Canadians um, who might be a little bit more social conservative than than other Canadians to back, a, back the PCs, but that didn't happen in some of the ridings that are among the most diverse in Winnipeg, right? So if you're the Conservatives looking at this as a potential way to activate a voter base in, in Brampton or Mississauga or places like that where the Conservatives need to win, it doesn't really suggest that it works that well. Um, So I I think that the Conservatives are probably, if they're smart, going to take out of this that when Heather Stevenson seemed to be doing best in the polls, doing best in the campaign was when she was talking about affordability issues, about the economy. And Pierre Poliev has a tendency to get knocked off message to maybe more pet projects that he he kind of seems to personally care about or enjoy or think that are You know, hot button political issues, but whenever he's been able to stick to the economy to affordability that's when he has done best. And I'm pretty sure their strategy for the next campaign is to try not to get distracted and go off onto these tangents that are probably not going to do anything except make sure that Max and Bernie gets 3% rather than 2% of the vote. (laughs) <laughs> or
2: that he runs in Portage Lisgar again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, you know, or yeah. Winnipeg South. Yeah, his, right. his winning
0: record has has not been particularly impressive since he left the Conservative Party. Mm.
2: Uh, but there are kind of you know uh, elections on the horizon, provincial elections, and I think one thing that is we're seeing in Saskatchewan, right next door, is that uh, Scott Moe is going to put all chips in the middle on parental rights uh, and is going to make this very much about. Uh, LGBTQ issues, even if he doesn't say so, and and is going to make this very much about trying to shore up a base. Do you think this signals to other provincial premiers that this is a strategy that um, not just the parental rights, but also the kind of uh, what Dan has been calling kind of a reconciliation fatigue, which I think he's right. I think there is kind of a reaction in particular areas of the province, maybe particularly rural areas. Uh, on the issue of Indigenous peoples get so much now they get the premier seat and uh, they complain and protest all the time and so on. And do you think there's that provincial premiers look at this result and see a potential for being able to harp on those issues?
0: Uh, I think in Saskatchewan maybe that has maybe more of a uh, an electoral appeal as, as bad it would be to say that Saskatchewan obviously has a demogra- uh, demographics that are more similar to Manitoba than you know, Ontario or New Brunswick where the indigenous population isn't as significant. Uh, and for Scott Moe, you know, the province is not the same kind of electoral map as in, as in Manitoba. In Manitoba, the majority of the seats are in Winnipeg. In Saskatchewan, the majority of the seats are outside of Regina and Saskatoon, right? So if you do have that strong rural base, you can win a government and you don't need to win many more than a handful of seats in the city. So I think that with Scott Moe, one of the thought, things that we saw in a by-election that was earlier this year was that in one of the ridings that was supposed to be a really solid rural riding where they normally get seventy plus percent of the vote, they dropped about twenty points because another party, the Saskatchewan United Party, which is another further right party, uh, got onto this issue of parental rights. It was related to a, a sex ed seminar that was in a school that that. Uh, some parents thought went too far. So I think that we see from Scott Mo a little bit of a reaction to that, perhaps an overreaction because I don't think he needs to worry about his rural base. And so the, it might work in in Saskatchewan. In, in a place like New Brunswick, where we know that Blaine Higgs has also been going on this issue, uh, that seems to be a little bit more risky to me because there are more seats in the urban centers. And as we saw in Winnipeg, these issues didn't seem to galvanize the vote all that much. So there would be a risk for premiers based on where they are, I think. Uh, but you know, I was looking at a poll that was just put out by, by Sparks, uh, Spark Insight Advocacy, and they were polling about this this issue, the pronoun issue and stuff like that. And they found that across the country, they did have another sample for Saskatchewan, but it would have been smaller. But across the country, only four percent put this as a top three issue. Mm-hmm. It's while it might be getting a lot of noise, I really don't think a lot of people are voting on this. So the PCs in Manitoba might have used this issue and kind of hinted at at um, you know the uh, trans uh, issue itself rather than actually explicitly saying it. But for a lot of voters, I they weren't voting for that. Uh, so at at worst, what it probably did was just push off people who might have been a swing voter who was concerned about the economy and is and wondering why the party is talking about this issue they don't care about. So I don't quite understand why a lot of uh, politicians seem to be jumping on this issue because I don't think it is one that is going to decide anybody's vote. Uh, but it, it is one that's grabbing a lot of attention, not only in Canada, but elsewhere. And I think that's probably why we're talking about it as much as we are.
1: So, I'm, I'm interested a couple of variations on on the the federal equation number one is that the governing party uh is unpopular uh you know here the governing party was unpopular and went hard right and they theoretically at least they believe that they kind of shored up support like they avoided an electoral disaster I think the the you know the 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 jury is still out on that Federally, the governing party is the one that's trailing in the polls, and the Conservatives are the ones that really, you know, and and things could change, but right now look like it's their election to lose. Uh, So does that uh, change the dynamic at all on things like parental rights? Uh, Does that make it like the, uh, you know, that parental rights could be more like kryptonite to the Conservatives if they were to embrace it because they're ahead in the polls. Um, but similarly, uh, I'm wondering if the, like the the conservative party is already lurched quite a bit farther right under Polyev's leadership in the convention in Quebec city, you saw, you know, people giving speeches about no more apologies. You know, we're tired of apologizing for things, you know, this, this idea that uh, as I've heard from some, Stalwart federal conservatives that they believe that that uh, white English speaking Canadians are among the most discriminated against constituency in the country. Um, Pierre Polyev is so close to the parental rights talking points. If he, even if he doesn't do it, do you believe that his opponents will drag him into that debate and 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 make him fracture you know support on the right side of the spectrum?
0: I don't know. I think that's uh, a, a, that would be risky. I think for the other parties because we've seen that on issues like abortion, gay marriage, gun rights, uh, the liberals are very willing to go after the conservatives about it. Try to expose the kind of tensions within the conservative caucus that there, you know, there are people within that caucus that would like to see more liberal uh, gun rules. Would l- have. Uncomfortable feelings about gay marriage or or trans issues or or things like that, and are you know anti-choice, and uh, they're they're welcome in the tent, and the liberals are very happy to try to point that out. But that's because I think those issues are pretty strongly in favor of of where the liberals are. Right? There's not mm-hmm. a lot of while the people who believe in in uh, in gun rights and 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 uh, reducing access to abortion believe in it a lot. They are a very small percentage of the population. So for the liberals those are maybe 70 30 issues and they're on the side of the 70 and they know that they can be used as 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 things to push off swing voters who might like the message that the conservatives have on the economy but these are red lines for them. Yeah. if I think that if I think that you you are not going to stand up for women, women's right to choose it doesn't matter what you say about the economy I'm not going to vote for you. These issues though I think we've seen in polling that it's a lot more split that because it it it's dealing with parents uh role in their children's lives there's a lot more of a defensiveness about it in the sense that well you know of course i would be a great parent i if my if my child came out to me that way i would accept them but i would want to know i wouldn't want this to happen without my knowledge so i think that there's a more of that kind of feeling that it gets a lot more a lot more complicated that poll that i, I mentioned from from uh, spark advocacy had it as 50-50 on yep. whether you should have uh, a, a teacher should be able to make the judgment of whether they should tell the parent or whether the parent should know. So, if the liberals decided that they, they wanted to go after the conservatives on this very hard, they do risk that they might end up being on the wrong side of that issue, especially since there's multiple parties that would be on that side and, and the conservatives would be largely alone on the other side. Uh, definitely, the, the liberals will want to portray Polyev as, as more extreme and and not mainstream, and so these kinds of issues can be helpful, and that's why maybe Poiliev has to be careful on this because <laughs> while a lot of people might be uncomfortable about the issue or not sure where they stand on it, uh, they'll be the, uh, the swing voters that we've seen that have gone over to the conservatives over the last little while are probably more likely to be concerned if if anything red flags come up that maybe this guy is is intolerant. So yeah it is a complicated issue i think for both parties that they they just need to kind of go a little bit to make sure that their side is on their side but not go too far to to get a reaction from the other side
1: yeah i, I mean if you if you looked at the coverage of the of the quebec city national convention the conservative party national convention i mean Poly, Polyev and his people they're playing with like they're they're playing with fire. It's the the core of that party is very volatile. You look at the look at the resolutions that were passed at the convention on um, you know uh, uh, the right to a single sex space, locker rooms, and uh, you know bathrooms and things like that. Um, you know, and uh, and other issues that that really venture very closely into that reconciliation fatigue you know uh, dynamic that's working its way through the electorate y- you had mentioned earlier though that you thought that wab canoe's uh election uh, his his rise to become canada's first first nations premier was going to mark canadian politics for a long time and i'm interested in exploring that a little bit more like how how do you think his uh his rise to that station uh will will affect uh politics across the country
0: well, I mean, there's a number of different ways that it could have an impact, and ways that you know we don't really know just yet. Um, certainly, as the first, as it's there's always extra pressure on being the first, whatever it is, right? Barack Obama, there was a lot of pressure on him to be, uh, to be a, uh, he he in a way he almost had to be even better of a president because he was the first and that he was up to a standard that that people were going to be holding up that was maybe not going to be applied to. To a white president. So the same thing I think is going to happen with Bob Canoe that the the stakes are really high for him because there's going to be a lot of people that are hoping that he succeeds. There's going to be a lot of people that are hoping that he doesn't succeed. But the, the pressure on him, I think, is going to be really high. So if the NDP government over the next few years is a successful one, then I, I think that that will be, uh, that could change a lot of minds for Canadians because certainly if the PCs went with the ad about standing firm against the landfill dig they felt that there was an undercurrent of as you mentioned this this kind of fatigue and and perhaps racism among Manitobans that they could try to mine so it, that exists there but if if wab canoe is able to be a, a a very good premier and that i think that 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 could have an impact of changing people's minds there's all, there's the other side of the coin that uh people who might already be prejudiced against indigenous people will see any error any problem that happens while he is premier as as indicative of of, you know the prejudice that they already have uh but and i am curious to see also just what what is going to mean in terms of of um participation from indigenous voters turnout is often quite a bit lower Um, and whether we see you know more candidates that are going to be coming forward uh and and that kind of thing i i think that it's the kind of it's the kind of result that we might not know what the impact is until we are 20 or 30 years from now whether it has a sort of a generational impact or not rather than over the next couple of years uh, oh man i do I, think that i do think the the yeah. the pressure is going to be pretty high on him
1: i i smell a follow-up podcast in 30 years okay so it's a date
2: <laughs> <laughs> um well I, I wish there would be ways to track this but it, it is impossible i mean i I said numerous times in the lead up that were, there was a, there's a cusp of uh, Indigenous peoples in Manitoba. 25% of Indigenous peoples are under the age of 20. And they would have just reached voting age this time around. And of course, it's impossible to track that and try to figure out, particularly because most of them are urban voters. So, I mean, we don't have any polls to be able to know, like, what was the impact of first-time First Nations voters. But I think certainly that there's a possibility that they saw some some hope in Wab Canoe maybe came out or, um, or whatever, but I will tell you this, you know, I was in, uh, I gave a talk uh, both the day of and or the day after the election, then the next day. And uh, the second that I said, Manitoba voted their first First Nations premier to mostly indigenous audiences. There was thunderous response. I mean, there's lots of reasons for First Nations people to not believe in Canada, not want to participate. And there's legitimate reasons for that. Uh, but Certainly, First Nations people saw a great deal of hope in Wab Canoe, and uh, and it was very Obama-esque, I think, that you described it pretty accurately. Um, I want to go to from the sort of thrills of the first time First Nations Premier to uh, arguably the most saddest part, or the saddest moment in, in the election night, which is uh, Dougald Lamont and the Manitoba Liberals. Um, I don't know if you're watching, Eric, on the coverage
0: I did see the interview. The, yeah,
2: the, the the interview as it's now called. Yes. Yeah, the, the most cringeworthy. Well, there was a couple of them. I mean, uh, Dan wrote about this in his column this week. Uh, I mean, what 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 a result for them? Uh, are they gone? Like, are we talking about a monumental defeat? Uh, we were actually talking at one point of potentially the Manitoba Liberals being. Uh, the difference, they being the, you know, in a minority parliament would have been the difference, but legislature, sorry. So what do you think the the Manitoba liberals do from here?
0: Well, like their colleagues in other Western provinces, things aren't going very well for the liberal brand. Uh, They're the only provincial liberal now between, uh, uh, you have to go all the way to Toronto to find the first provincial liberal uh, that has a seat anywhere uh, going from, from west to east. So... You know for the the Manitoba Liberals, they've been here before. They, they have had other elections where they win one seat, where they win two seats, they get seven percent of the vote, twelve percent of the vote. I, I think the question is more what do the what does the party have to do to change that? Uh, they did have a real opportunity here. If the NDP campaign had faltered, I think that a lot of that liberal vote would have stuck with the party uh, because they, they wouldn't have wanted to go over to the PCs and then maybe they would have won their three seats. And, and the NDP would have struggled enough that maybe they did would have ended up in a minority situations. But a lot of that counted on the NDP to have a bad campaign, I think. Uh, and that's not really a great strategy, a great place to be in when you're only counting on your opponents to screw up in order to have any success. But what they do from here, I don't know. It's going to be really tough for them because uh, with an NDP government, there's gonna be less of a reason for the Liberals to be there in a way. Um, because we saw that the NDP did get a lot of that vote, they, they won a lot of the part of the, the province that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily progressive strongholds, right? So there's a lot of those centrist voters that would have gone to the NDP. So I don't know what they're going to have to do going forward. Uh, but this is a question that provincial Liberals have in pretty much every province in the country. Ontario is having, uh, you know, the Liberals are really struggling there. The Quebec Liberals seem to be adrift. Uh, The Liberals are in a bad position, PEI in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they might be able to win an election, but that's about it. There's a lot of questions for those centrist parties at the provincial level. I think at the federal level, there is still this need for this brokerage party that can combine, you know, Francophones in Quebec and Atlantic Canadians and urban centers and and new Canadians. But at the provincial level, there's not as much of that difference between voters. So there isn't as much of a need to have a robust three-party system. Uh, So I don't know what the solution is for the Liberals here because uh, they're going to likely have to continue being in in a little bit of the wilderness for the next little while. If the NDP government turns out to be a failure and the PCs do not get themselves in a position to be uh, garnering that centrist vote, maybe the Liberals have an opportunity, but uh, again, it mostly counts on their, their opponents screwing up. I'm very curious to see who will step up to be the next Manitoba
2: liberal leader uh, for, if you think about the way Dougal rebuilt that party and uh, I wouldn't call it a collapse. It would, might be that what you pointed out, which was such a a polarizing election that uh, I think the appeal that Wab Canu made even during the Manitoba leaders debate of asking liberals specifically to Uh, one time only maybe, or turn to the NDP party to support, to form a new government for change. Uh, Certainly that message was probably more resonant than a rejection of Dougal Lamont, who uh, really rebuilt that party from the ashes from the former leader, uh, Rana Bakari, who uh, just took the party to a total disaster. Uh, I mean, I'm very curious as to see where that goes. And, uh, you know, Eric, I want to say very... Rarely. And if you listen to any of my work and hear me talk, I don't often have a lot of nice things to say about people outside of Manitoba, (laughs) Manitoba, Um, particularly those in the east. And, uh, and, you know, I did send out a rather fiery tweet. Uh, sort of reminding the country that when they call us the most racist place in the galaxy, uh, they might want to look in their own backyard as much as they look at us. Uh, But Eric, what an honour it is to to be able to work with you and uh, be on your podcast. Now you've come on ours. Uh, You know, someone who's in the East, someone who knows federal politics, but also knows the really granular details of Manitoba elections. So really, thanks for coming on the pod today.
0: I I really appreciate it. And, and, uh, you know, I... I, I know that kind of thing within uh, within the you know the Ottawa bubble that uh, everything that's outside of it is uh, provincial parochial and not important. But I've always enjoyed and thought that the provincial politics throughout the country is always really important. And uh, delving deeply into it, uh, you know, I love I love uh, I love getting to know all the different parts of the country. So uh, I, I'm uh, I appreciate that I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about it uh, with uh, some actual Manitobans.
1: Well, some of us. Transplanted Manitobans, but I, you know, I, I I'm rejected both by my Toronto roots and by my adopted home. So, I don't know what that says, but yeah, no, Eric, keep fighting the power, you know, the, of the bubble. And uh, uh, you're uh, you're really one of the the only people in the country who's providing real national news coverage. So, uh, good on you.
2: Thanks very much. Yeah, big watch, thanks. thanks.